Numbers chapter 22. We've been considering great stories from God's Word, and today we're going to consider one of the most interesting ones in all of the Old Testament. And if you'll make your way there, we're going to look at parts of chapters 22 through 24, so you'll want to keep your Bibles open. What I plan to do is tell the story of what's taking place here and then circle back and share with you some life principles that we can learn from this theme, God's Word is the final word. When we think about someone getting the last word in, we don't always think about it in a positive sense. Uh, We think about an argument or a disagreement or someone making a definitive statement, and it means if they got the last word in, that they likely won the argument or they made the final decision. I used to say to my children in not the most spiritual manner when I was at the end of my patients, I've said what I'm going to say. And they knew very well that when I said, I've said what I'm going to say, that that was it. I had won the discussion and I had the last word. This section of scripture that we are considering today will remind us that God always has the final word. And God having the final word is a good thing for us because he's trustworthy. We know that he has our best interest in mind. He loves us and because his word is the final word, it's always a good word. The book of Numbers in the Bible begins with the Israelites on Mount Sinai after the giving of the law of God. They arranged themselves in somewhat of a military formation and began to move toward the promised land. And they made their way from Mount Sinai to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And 12 men, one from each of the tribes, were sent into the promised land as spies. They all came back with the same report, essentially, yes, It is a land that is rich. It is something that would be desirable. But 10 of those spies said the enemy there is too great. The people there are like giants in our sight. And only two of those spies, Joshua and Caleb, came back with a faith report that would have led the people to move forward. Now, you remember what happened. The Israelites, as a result of not having faith, Uh, went with the 10. They went with the majority at that time, which was wrong. And as a result of that, they were judged by God and they were left to wander in the wilderness for some 40 years because of their disobedience and their lack of faith in God. The generation who would take the promised land came further into the wilderness in a place called the wilderness of Zen. There was no water there. So as had been their pattern, they began to complain. God understood that they needed water, so he told their leader, Moses, to speak to this particular rock, and out of that rock would come water to supply their needs. Moses, in frustration with the people, instead strikes the rock twice with a rod in disobedience to God, and that simple act of disobedience also brought consequences to Moses' life. He was forbidden to enter into the promised land. He would only be able to look over into the promised land and to see it from the mountaintop. In the midst of all of this, Aaron, Moses' brother, also died. The final section of Numbers deals with the second generation of the Israelites, the generation that 
was preparing to go into the promised land. The final chapters describe their approach to the promised land, and in it, we find the account of this man named Balaam, who is the subject of this message this morning. Balaam is a rather intriguing man, an intriguing personality. Um, He was what was known as a diviner or a practitioner of sorcery, so he had some ability supernaturally to do some things that wowed people, but the problem was his character was corrupt. He was a man who was evidently for hire. He would appeal to any false god that he was directed to appeal to, and evidently he had some success because he was paid to query and to ask these questions and was known far and wide. When the Canaanite king Arad heard the Israelites were approaching his territory, he attacked them and took some of the Israelites captive. But God, as he was often doing, gave them over into the hands of the Israelites, and the Israelites destroyed them. So they made their way to this place called Edom, and it was there at Edom that because of their disobedience to God that he sent fiery serpents in their midst. That was the last story that we considered, and we saw how Jesus in the New Testament compares himself to that bronze pole that was lifted up in the wilderness Because when the people looked at that bronze pole that had the image of the snake on it, then they would be rescued and their lives would be spared. Jesus, likewise, is lifted up. And when he is lifted up, people are drawn to him and they're saved. And the remainder of chapter 21 that we considered tells of Israel making their way to Pisgah. It was a ridge near the top of Mount Nebo. And it would be from Pisgah that Moses would view the promised land, then he would die, and God would bury him. The funeral in the Bible that God presided over. The Israelites sent messengers to the king of the Amorites, and they were wanting permission to pass through their land. The king refused and assembled an army to wage war against them, and again they won, and they defeated the Amorites. They went up by way of a place called Bashan, And they encountered Og, who was the king of Bashan, who came to fight them there. Og was also defeated. Then they made their way to the plains of Moab. Moab was located uh, near the Jordan River, across from the city of Jericho, which is, of course, is famous in these Old Testament narratives as well. And there was a king there named Balak. The king, Balak, of the Moabites saw what the Israelites had done Uh, to the Amorites, and he was afraid. In fact, the Bible says that he and his people were greatly afraid. Now, I think they might have been more concerned by the sheer number of the Israelites, just in fact that they would come into their land and take over everything that they had. But at any rate, they formed an alliance, and they conspired to go to a man named Balaam, who they thought could put a curse on the Israelites so that they would be victorious. Balaam was from a city that was located along the Euphrates River, about 370 miles away from where this king was. It was in the region where Abraham once lived. Do you remember when God called him out of darkness and called him to be the father of a nation, a great nation, and through that nation all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So Balak, the king sends messengers to Balaam the prophet. 
And he had something in mind, beginning in Numbers chapter 22 and verse 5. He says, look, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the surface of the land and are living right across from me. Verse 6, please come and put a curse on these people because they are more powerful than I am. I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. So Balak, king of the Moabites, wanted Balaam to come and curse the Israelites. The major problem with this was what God had said about Israel all the way back when he called Abram to be the father of this great nation. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2 and 3, God said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So mark this down. God and God alone can bless or curse because God has the final word. Whether or not these people were going to be blessed or cursed depended on the will of God, not on a pagan king who was trying to pay a prophet of his own hire to curse the people. So the elders came as emissaries to Balaam with money in hand. After all, Balak was a king. He had a lot of resources. And they come and they tell him what Balak the king wanted him to do. Balaam responds, Numbers chapter 22 and verse 8. And he says, spend the night here and I will give you the answer that the Lord tells me. Now, God comes to Balaam, perhaps in a dream. It's not explicitly spelled out for us. And he asks Balaam a question in verse 9. Who are these men with you? Now, something interesting of note here. God knows the answer to every question he's ever asked. And God knows the answer to every question that ever could be asked. So when we see God in the scripture asking questions of people, it's because he's seeking to elicit a response. He's entering into dialogue so that he can talk with the people about what he wants done. It's the same way with Jesus in the New Testament. He often employed questions. And when he employed questions, it wasn't because he didn't know the answer. It was because he had a point that he wanted to make. So Balaam replies to God and he tells him that, at least in part, what is happening. And the messengers had come to him and said these things to him. And God says to Balaam in verse 12, you're not to go with them and you are not to curse these people because they're blessed. It's pretty definitive. His will is clear. Balaam gets up the next morning. He tells the messengers, look, I'm not going. You can go back to your land. The Lord has refused to let me go with you. And the men go back to Balak the king with the king's money and they report to him what they found with Balaam. God rebuked Balaam on the hills of this for even having the guest. Balaam only tells part of what the people had asked and God said to him, don't go and don't do it. But the problem was when the emissaries went back to the king The king didn't want to take no for an answer. After all, people in power don't like being told no because they're people in power. They're people of authority. So when they go back and they tell him no, 
this time he decides he's going to send some emissaries who are more numerous. And not only are they more numerous, but they are higher in rank. So he's stepping it up here. And Balaam wants to offer an enhanced deal. So the situation was, hey, Balaam, Balak wants to offer you an enhanced deal. You can name your price, essentially. And so was the circumstance. And God comes to Balaam again and he says, verse 20, Since these men have come to summon you, get up and go with them, but you must only do what I tell you. Verse 21, when he got up in the morning, Balaam saddled his donkey and went with the officials of Moab. Now, God was permitting this, but God was not pleased with it. He knew the heart of this man ultimately. He knew what his goals were ultimately, and God was incensed with him for even entertaining the idea. That's what verse 22 says. God was incensed that Balaam was going. So these high officials who come for Balaam probably had a posse traveling along with them. I don't know about you, but in the children's Bible story, I always envision that it's just Balaam and the donkey and the angel of the Lord that we'll get to here in just a moment. I'm envisioning this this, uh, personal event that's happening. But in fact, it's really a caravan that's going along when they finally leave. And this was a big traveling event. But note this. By choosing to go with these emissaries, Balaam positioned himself directly against God. And I want you to notice what happens here in the second part of verse 22. The Bible says, the angel of the Lord stood his stand on the path to oppose him. The angel of the Lord appears numerous times in the Bible. And there has been speculation about who the angel of the Lord is. Some would say that it's a theophany, a, a pre-incarnate presentation, or a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. But at any rate, what we know about this angel of the Lord, this powerful being, is that he came to represent God. He was speaking for God on God's behalf. And it says in verse 22, Balaam was riding his donkey and his two servants were with him. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing on the path with a sword drawn in his hand, she turned off the path and went into the field. So Balaam hit her to return her to the path. Balaam didn't see the angel of the Lord, but the donkey saw him. Verse 24, then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow passage between the vineyards with a stone wall on either side. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord and pressed herself against the wall squeezing Balaam's foot against it. So he hit her once again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn to the right or to the left. See, oftentimes oftentimes when God gets our attention in the most clear way, it's when we feel like we're hemmed in, but God has either permitted us to be hemmed in or he has caused us to be hemmed in. So we would not look at our circumstances We would not look at ourselves. We would not bemoan our situation, but we would look to him because we realize, hey, there's no other way out. There's no other answer here. There's nowhere else that I can turn. And verse 27 says, when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she crouched under Balaam. So he became furious and beat the donkey with his stick. And then something supernatural happened. The Lord caused the donkey to, to speak. Now, I'll not say exactly how one preacher phrased it, but you can surmise for yourself. 
he entitled this encounter, What Can a Donkey Teach a... And you know what? The donkey spoke to Balaam, rebuking him for his sin. Isn't this amazing that a donkey is a better seer than the seer himself? And the donkey says in verse 28, What have I done to you that you have beat me these three times? Balaam says, you made me look like a fool. Remember, these emissaries are traveling. He's making his way back to Balak the king. He said, you made me look like a fool. And if I had a sword, I'd just kill you right now. And the donkey says in verse 30, am I not the donkey you've ridden all your life until today? Have I ever treated you this way before? And everybody said, aw. I mean, can't you feel the emotion of the deal? It even says that it was a female donkey. So she's speaking to him and says, why are you doing this to me? Have I ever done anything like this to you? And Balaam simply answers in verse 30, no. And then in verse 31, the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. He saw the angel of the Lord standing in the path with a drawn sword in his hand. And Balaam knelt low and he worshiped on his face. And the angel of the Lord asked the same question the donkey asked in verse 32. Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? Look, I came to oppose you because I consider what you're doing to be evil. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away from me, I would have killed you by now and I would have let her live. See, God in the midst of this is still showing mercy to this man who deserved no mercy. We don't deserve mercy either. He hems him in, and had it not been for God supernaturally causing the animal to speak, Balaam would have already been killed by the angel of the Lord. So he replies in verse 34, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the path to confront me. And now, if it is evil in your sight, I will go back. And the angel of the Lord said, go with the men, but you are to say only what I tell you. You see a theme that is rising through here? God's word is the final word. God is directing this process. And Balaam goes back with the officials to see Balak the king. And Balak comes out to meet him. And he asks, verse 37, did I not send you or issue you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? He's thinking, well, maybe he doesn't think I can really deliver what I've promised. And Balaam tells him in verse 38, I must only speak the message God puts in my mouth. The next morning, Balak takes him out to the outskirts of the camp and Balaam issues a series of oracles on behalf of Israel. And you'll notice how these oracles uh, progress. In chapter 23 and verse 8 and 9, he says, how can I curse someone God has not cursed? Or how can I denounce someone the Lord has not denounced? Chapter 23 and verse 19 and 20, God is not a man that he might lie or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? I have indeed received a command to bless since he blessed, and I cannot change it. Then chapter 24 in verse 9, 
Those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. Verse 13, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go against the Lord's command to do anything good or bad of my own will. I will say whatever the Lord says. And then chapter 24 and verse 18, Israel will be triumphant. Verse 23, who can live when God does this, when God brings the victory? A word of caution at this point in our story. Balaam sounds like he's on the right track. But later we find out in the story that he would do what he needed to do to get his reward from Balak. Rather than directly speaking against the Israelites, he advised the Moabites on how they can entice the people of Israel with prostitutes and idolatry. He couldn't figure out how to curse them, so instead he comes up with a plan for them to curse themselves. Balak, in fact, followed Balaam's advice, and Israel fell into this worship pattern of false gods and committed sin with the foreign women. And the Bible says that as a result of that, God plagued them and 24,000 died. Now we'll get to the end of Balaam here in just a moment, but here's an interesting tie-in. I told you as we started through these Old Testament narratives and this unique sermon series that there's a direct tie-in with the New Testament, right? You can't really read the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament and vice versa. They go together. There is one united theme that God gives from the beginning to the end. Well, it just so happens that Balaam is referenced several times in the New Testament. Peter compared false teachers to Balaam, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15. And he said these false teachers loved the wages of wickedness. Jude said something similar, and he associated Balaam with the selling of one's own soul for financial gain in verse 11. Jesus spoke of Balaam when he warned the church in Pergamum in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and verse 14. He said, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. So I think the pattern here is that Balaam was a false prophet. He was tempted to his own destruction by the love of money. And not only was he tempted to his own destruction by the love of money, but he was enticed by his own pride. And when people came to him to pay him to do these things, which were in fact wicked and rebellious against God, he was drawn in by his own pride to do them. But here's the deal. God's word is the final word. And we learn later on that Balaam himself was killed. And he was killed in battle by the Israelites. God's word is the final word. I want to show you in this time that I have left four life principles that we can learn from this story about how God's word is the final word. The first life principle is because God's word is the final word, 
there are always consequences for opposing him. Because God's word is the final word, there are always consequences for opposing him. Now, Balaam squarely opposed God by even considering the money of the wicked king. He put himself in opposition to God. And you can mark this down. Anyone who goes up against God in opposition to him always loses. There's not a single example of anybody who seeks to oppose God and wins. This is the origin of rebellion to begin with when Satan was in heaven and he wanted the position that rightfully belonged to God and God alone. And he suffered the consequences for that and all who follow him will suffer those consequences as well. So if we call ourselves followers of Christ, if our faith is in the one true living God of the Bible, we need to be sure that we're always going in the way that God wants us to go and not in opposition to him. Now, this is important to understand in light of the gospel, because the gospel makes it clear that we once were in opposition to God. If we have not been reconciled to God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, then we are alienated and we are enemies of God. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27 says, And you were once alienated and hostile in mind because of your evil actions. The word alienated means estranged. When we are in opposition to God, we are closed out from fellowship with God. When we are lost, we are alienated from life with God. And let me tell you, the worst thing about hell will be separation from God eternally. To be separated from the God who created you and gave you life physically and offered you eternal life as a gift spiritually, if you turn your back on that in opposition to God, you'll be forever alienated from him. We're enemies of God. What does it mean to be an enemy? It means to have an attitude of rebellion and persistent opposition, to be enemies in our minds and also enemies in our behavior. And that's how sin works. It starts in our minds, and then it works its way out into our lives. Friend, be sure that you're not in opposition to God. The second life principle is because God's word is the final word. Obeying him includes not only knowing, but doing. You see, Balaam knew what he was supposed to do. And for a while, he did it. But you better note here that partial obedience is complete disobedience. It's not enough just to go partway with God or to obey the parts that are convenient or for the moment to keep ourselves in good standing It's a heart that is reconciled to God that desires to do the right thing from the beginning to the end. And Balaam was in the wrong position here. He knew what was right, but he didn't ultimately do what was right. I'm reminded of the account of Jesus with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed and as he had his eyes fixed firmly on the cross in John chapter 13 after the Passover meal, 
Jesus got up from the table and he put a towel around his waist and he began to wash the feet of his disciples. Now, in doing so, he was symbolizing the fact that his death would be an act of service, that he had come to serve, not to be served. He'd come to give his life as a ransom for many. But in that moment, he was teaching them even further because John 13 and verse 16, he says, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And then he says this in verse 17, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. The word happy is the word blessed. So I'd say to you today that obedience is the evidence of knowledge. Obedience is a reflection that we've gotten it in our heads and we've received it in our hearts and now we want to live it out in our lives. There's a direct correlation between knowledge and obedience. There are a lot of people who know what the right thing is, but they refuse to do it because of their own selfishness and partial obedience is complete disobedience. We need to know it and we need to do it. When the Lord speaks, we need to listen and we need to say, yes, Lord, we want to do what you've called us to do. The third life principle is this, because God's word is the final word, we should never use him to get what we want. Because God's word is the final word, we should never use him to get what we want. Now, I think what was happening here, and you've got to watch closely to see this, is that in the first part, Balaam does what God told him to do. But I think this prophet for hire was moving toward the blessing, what he saw as the immediate payoff, relief from his circumstance, uh, sparing of his life, to be in good standing with God. He moves toward what he thinks is the blessing rather than moving toward God himself. You see, that's a great temptation for all of us. In fact, sometimes that's how the Christian faith is presented. It's like, well, look at all these things that God will do for you. And it becomes this man-centered gospel. And a man-centered gospel easily flows in to a prosperity gospel mindset. And a man-centered gospel that flows into a prosperity gospel mindset is no gospel at all. Because the true gospel is about faith in Christ and Christ alone. And believing that what God says is true. Oh, Balaam was afraid of the consequences And he had no real ultimate intention in honoring God. I think we sometimes are guilty of doing the same thing. We seek God only when we want something. We seek God sometimes only to fix our problems. We're drawn toward God only in the moment because we think that we're going to get a blessing for it. Oh, well, I'll give a good offering, or I'll do that, or I'll sign up for this, or I'll say that because I certainly want to be in good standing with God. Not having a heart for God himself in some ways that we try to use God are obvious. In other ways, they're not so obvious. In Mark's gospel, Mark tells the early days of Jesus' ministry around Capernaum. And Jesus was healing people. He was casting out demons, and word spread, and man, people came in droves to get close to Jesus. Jesus was compassionate, of course, 
But without doubt, there were many people who were coming for what they could get. They saw Jesus as a means to an end, and they didn't understand the root cause of their suffering, which was living in a sin-fallen world and needing to be reconciled to God. You see, in all the healings of Jesus, he's seeking to point them to a greater healing. He's seeking to point them to a spiritual healing. He's seeking to point them to a life of faith. In the book of Acts, the seven sons of Siva saw the manifestation of the power of God in the ministry of the apostle Paul performing extraordinary miracles. So they thought it was a, an opportunity for them to get personal gain. And they came up against the demon and they're trying to speak kind of as a surrogate, if you will, for Paul in that moment. And they come up against the demon that absolutely whipped them into submission, gave them a severe beating. And the Bible says as a result of what happened on the hills of that, everyone feared the Lord. Friend, be careful about using God to get what you want rather than serving God and loving God for who he is. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing knowledge of the worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. We should desire to know God for who he is, not just what he does for us. This is the only place of satisfaction and peace. The fourth life principle, and the last one, is this. Because God's word is the final word, we should stay on the right path and avoid the wrong path. We should stay on the right path and avoid the wrong path. Now, this was painfully clear in the encounter of Balaam with the angel of the Lord. Let me give you a word of caution here. If we are in Christ, the Spirit of God has sealed us for the day of redemption. We eternally belong to God. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. However, in our disobedience to God as his children, we can bring discipline upon ourselves. The book of Hebrews talks about this extensively, that if we put ourselves in a position where we are disobeying God, that God can do what is necessary to get our attention to bring us back to where we need to be. We, he will permit us to suffer the consequences of poor decisions because he loves us as his children, just like we discipline our own children. We want to steer them away from harm. We want to make sure that they're on the right path, and the Bible's clear about that. But there's this big picture in the Scripture of a contrast between the way of righteousness and the way of wickedness, the way of light and the way of darkness. Now, the Bible paints these beautiful contrasts that help us understand the difference between right and wrong and good and evil and God and the enemy. And this is one of those instances where that contrast is so clear. In the book of Proverbs, in chapter 4 and verse 14 and 15, it says, don't set a foot on the path of the wicked. Don't proceed in the way of the evil ones. Avoid it. Don't travel on it. Turn away from it and pass by. And then verse 18 in Proverbs 4 says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, shining brighter and brighter until midday. Now you might be able to think of the passage in the New Testament 
which would be along these same lines. Matthew chapter 7, the broad and the narrow way. Beginning in verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, Jesus said, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and how difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. So there's two ways. There's the way of righteousness and there's the way of wickedness. There's the way of light and there's the way of darkness. There's the broad road and there's the narrow road. And there's only one right way to walk and that's on the righteous path. But here's the blessing. The righteous path, the narrow path, the path of light leads to life, to life with God forever. And that's God's intention for us to begin with is that we would be with him forever, that he would direct us and guide us in this life, that we would have his presence, we would experience communion with him, we would know what true love is. And to be able to experience that in eternity with God forever and forever. And I say this to you, and I'm going to come toward a close. Everyone who goes against God loses. And everyone who goes with God wins. You see, Balaam enticed the foreign women to go out to the Israelites and offer themselves to the men of Israel who would commit idolatry and sexual immorality. Numbers 31 and verse 16 says, Look, these women caused the children of Israel, listen to this, through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Joshua chapter 13 and verse 22 puts it this way, Balaam also the one who practiced divination, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of their slain. God is unchanging and his word is dependable. Build your life on the word. Don't build your life on the world. God's word is the last word and God's word is is a good word and it's for us if our faith is in him let's bow our heads together just for a moment as we come toward the close of the service what path is your life on are you truly directed by the word of god toward life and life eternal if not, today would be a good day to get on the right path. God's word is the final word, and that word unto you is that if you will confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the hope of the gospel. Christians, followers of Jesus, are you on the right path? Are you headed down a road that looks like obedience, but it's only partial obedience, meaning that it is complete disobedience? God has a word for you. This is the way. Walk in it, and you'll be blessed. Father, thank you for your grace to us. 
thank you for these examples in Scripture. And what a, an amazing narrative this is of the life of Balaam. May we learn from it a word of warning and walk in the way of righteousness and life eternal. Bless us, Lord. Grant us wisdom and peace as we say yes to you and as we follow you in all things by the power of your Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.